Today on Never Was a Gamer, you ever drink a ghost? Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time playing everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me as always is my mysterious but alluring guide who just loves corny magic tricks, Dimitri. Wait, who, who are you referring to? Poof, I'm gone, in a puff of smoke. Oh, Sheik. Poof, I'm gone oh, again, not, oh. in a puff of smoke. Okay, you didn't Sheik, take the- wait, where are you going? Poof, I'm gone again, in a puff of smoke. You didn't take the easy way out with the with Navi. <laughs> well, Sheik, okay. I think you're more of a Sheik. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, today Michelle has completed Ocarina of Time. Maybe Poof, the greatest. I'm gone in a puff of smoke. <laughs> Every time. Okay, continue. Maybe the greatest game of all time. <laughs> we'll we'll discuss it. But but first, I think we have to start with maybe Michelle's favorite way to start anything with an apology from you, from me, because <laughs> I have to eat some hats. Mm, yum yum yum. So when Michelle was starting up Ocarina of Time, I got the itch to play some Zelda. So I went and I got my Switch and I booted up. A Link to the Past. Oh, that one I played when I was young and remember some things about clearly. So this is this is a callback. This goes back what eight months <laughs> to to when you did Link's Awakening. So I'm so I'm going through A Link to the Past, and you know I I get through the first little dungeon, and I get to Kakariko Village, and I go into a house. <laughs> There's some pots there. You know where this is going. Oh yeah. And I pick up a pot, and there's the chicken. Yeah. <laughs> the cuckoo is right there and he makes a little chicken sound <laughs> now to be fair he wasn't in the pot always was a gamer <laughs> he wasn't in the pot <laughs> he was behind the pot i okay, think but y- i was still right about that though yeah you were right and i gave you so much <laughs> shit about <You> that did. <laughs> yeah you were actually uh, like just a touch condescending about it <laughs> um which is why i'm feel good returning that energy to you right now so i think you're it's okay buddy <laughs> you're the real Zelda master here. <laughs> so maybe we should just follow your lead. Yeah, I'll tell you what's a good Zelda. <laughs> <laughs> so is Ocarina of Time a good Zelda? Hell yeah. I mean, I have a growing suspicion that maybe pretty much all Zeldas are good Zeldas. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's a dud in there somewhere, but I think I just really like this series. Yeah, I'm really glad you do. And this came up in the Link's Awakening episode because you also like that game. And- yeah. And I mentioned there, right, this is a series that is in many ways built for you that you just <laughs> never got around to, even though, for, for no real reason, even though I think everything you've ever heard about it suggests to you that maybe this is something you would like. So I'm yeah, really glad you're... we have talked in, in uh, you know, both of the setup episodes about how the ad campaigns didn't necessarily always communicate, like, what fans would come to love about Zelda. Sure, so... but I, I doubt you were looking at the ad campaigns. I, I doubt no, that was I wasn't. That was preventing you from playing them. You're right. <laughs> So before we get into this too deep, why don't you just give us a quick synopsis of what this game's about? Sure. So uh, like with Link's Awakening, you're a little sword and shield action boy Link, and (laughs) you've got your overworld and dungeons. But the main structural feature of this game is that you play the first quarter third of it as young Link in this like healthy, thriving Hyrule. And then you have a time skip forward seven years uh, and you're sort of revived as an adult in a world that's been desolated by Ganondorf, your enemy. So you're sort of at many points 
in the game, you're moving back and forth between doing things and acting on the world as young Link versus uh, seeing the results of those and manipulating it as old Link, like adult Link. Yeah, from action boy to action man. <laughs> uh, so I'm really glad, actually, that we got to play two Zeldas um, relatively close together within a year. Um, but like I said, it wasn't just to play two Zeldas. It was because I think playing a 2D one and then seeing how that transitions to 3D is actually an important part of filling in the gaps of this time where you weren't playing games. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so this is, we've had a few transition to 3D games. Mm -hmm. We played Metal Gear Solid pretty early on, which was a transition to 3D, but you hadn't really played the earlier ones and we didn't really touch those. Yeah. Uh, but it was figuring out how to bring a series into 3D, even though it had been pretty dormant up until then. And then you had Mario 64, which was mm -hmm. how do you transition a very active series into 3D? Mm -hmm. uh, and then we have this one. And yeah, if I remember right with Mario, you were a little bit colder on it than definitely I was and am. And yep. maybe that I was hoping yep. so. And I think a lot of that just had to do with the the rough edges. Yeah. And and I honestly, I, I know from our setup talk that a lot of the team that worked on Mario 64 also worked on this. Right. And I see that so strongly. I see so many things in here that are a refined or further pushed along version of ideas that started with Super Mario. And for me, this is by far the most successful of the like transition to 3D games that we've played. Okay, so what do you mean by that? What what was successful about this transition? I mean, I think for me, this is the most sure-footed environmental design. I think by far, this is the best any of these games um, has played. Hmm. Um, it, it for sure is the most comfortable to be in this world and you feel the most... Um, I felt the most in this adventure game as mm. opposed to controlling a character and having to be really conscious of my hands, you know? Oh, right. Yeah, my yeah. hands disappeared a lot more in mm. this one. Did this one feel the most familiar to you then based on, you know, all the games that you play, all the current games you play that really, you know, refined stuff that began in this era? Yes, in a big way. Um, and I'm kind of curious about whether that means some of what is great about this game is invisible to me, because, you know, mm. the more familiar things seem, the easier it is for me not to recognize them. You know what I mean? Right. There's so many parts of this game that I think were done, if not for the first time, maybe refined mm -hmm, or, you mm -hmm. know, put together for the first time uh, with all these other elements. And we'll talk about some of those later. But I think you're right that so many of them have just become, you know, staples of any 3D game that it, right. they're probably invisible to you. And that's Right, but and even it's so hard to go back and figure out what those are because you just yeah, I can't kinda, unknow them. <laughs> yeah, like your like in in terms of like your gaming life, you've grown up with those already right. in place. Right. I mean, I will say that even with those things maybe being not as not hitting as hard for me as they would have for you like playing this in the time, this is still a stunner. This is a great game. I can say without hesitation that I loved this game. Yeah, just from watching you, I think you were hooked the moment you saw that the title screen. <laughs> yeah, great opening. But let's actually start off by talking about the feel of this game, the controls of this game, which, as you said, worked much better for you than Mario 64. Sure. Which I think for me at the time felt pretty natural and seamless, or at least a seamless transition from 2D to 3D, but I can understand now how they can feel a bit clunky, and especially with that N64 controller. Yeah. Oh, this, this is probably a good time to bring up that you ended up playing the 3DS version of this mm -hmm. because there are some quality of life improvements. It's portable. It makes a lot of things easier. <laughs> you didn't want me to quit during the water temple. <laughs> <laughs> but you did, play the, you did play the first bit of this on the N64 so you could get a feel for how it 
how it played um, with that controller and what yeah. it looked like, what the original game looked like. Yeah. Um, and I was glad that we switched. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think um, there's a couple of things that this game does that um, I wasn't 100% sure about when they were first introduced, but very quickly became really, really seamless and felt so like such obvious uh choices to make, including, honestly, the kind of lack of camera control. There were not a lot of cases where the camera was really problematic for me. I'm surprised how well that worked. Yeah, I went and played a bit of this too, and and still kind of in retrospect, surprised at how great the auto camera is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, it's really quite effective. There was, there was such a small number of times that I wish I could make it work differently. And really on the grand scheme, that happens to me in every game, regardless of whether I'm controlling the camera or not. So it's like, uh. Lockitude's been replaced by a robot. Yeah. You know what? We all will be eventually. The, the Z targeting, basically a lock on targeting makes perfect sense. Yeah. And it I'm just works. And this is why I'm glad you got to play with the N64 controller a bit because it feels so good with the trigger. Yeah, it does. And I still very much miss that the trigger. That's yeah, that trigger feels good, eh? Yeah, and it just makes sense for you know shooting, locking on. Mm-hmm. It just feels so natural. I kind of like how a lot of games have taken the you know like clicking the analog stick as a as a lock on that yeah. kind of replicates that a little bit, but. And just give me a trigger back, like a nice one at the back, like that. I never like the click the um, click mm-hmm. in the, the the analog stick. It always feels weird to me. But this I really liked. I mean, again, there were a couple of times. Sometimes it's hard to lock on to things that are like higher than you, like right, where yeah. you have verticality issues. But again, you know, you've got a boat. Like you've you've got so many options in this game that it didn't really get in the way, and it just. It made what could have been such a pain point of targeting so simple. Like it just, it almost always grabbed the thing that I wanted it to grab. I I just am so impressed with on the programming side, how well this just worked. It just did what I wanted it to do like 99% of the time. Yeah. And as we talked about last time, they developed the combat around that and the types of combat encounters you've had Mm -hmm. really focusing on, uh, you know, the Chanbara style of sword play. You against, you know, one enemy at a time having those duels. Did you enjoy that part? Yes, absolutely. I really like the, some of my, most of my favorite combat, even outside of bosses, are the ones where you would be sort of one-on-one with an enemy Mm. that takes a couple of hits to kill. I really kind of enjoyed the, like, skeletons with sword and shield. My favorite ones were um, in the spirit temple, the big knight guys, the, um, I think they're called iron knuckles when I looked them up. There's, I think, three of them. They, mm. They're just like big old guys with a, with a big range and a sword and shield. And you really are just dueling them and like keeping pillars in the way between you. Like that was so fun. You're like moving in and out of their range so that you can hit them and then get out before you get hit. Like it felt so fun. Like they aren't quite at the level of mini bosses, but they just like I really felt like I was like, you know, mano a mano. <laughs> with, you know, I don't know. It, it felt really good. Yeah, another thing that this game did that's probably one of those things that's relatively invisible now because it's done so frequently, but at this at this point wasn't, was the use of context-sensitive buttons. So mm-hmm. having, in this case, the A button pretty much be the generic action button that did different things depending on what you needed it to do at the moment. Mm, right. And again, I don't think it's worth really talking about how that worked because... Everything does. <laughs> yeah, it's it's adopted. It has been adopted so much. It's clear that I, I think that this is this is uh, an innovation that people have carried forward. Again, I don't know if this is the first game to do it, but it it does it so well. Where 
I think this is probably part of the reason why the controller kind of disappears, because you know that if you need to do something that's not, you know, putting up your shield or swinging your sword, the A button will probably accomplish that thing in the moment. Right. Yeah, totally. And one button this game doesn't have, which was a huge innovation at the time, is a jump button. Right. Which it took you a while (laughs) to realize. So this game has an auto jump. So basically, if you... If you're running or if you have some kind of speed and approach a ledge, Link will just automatically clear the gap. Yeah. Michelle, though, until pretty late in the game, thought that you were manually jumping every time. And what were you you hitting A? I I don't, I can't even recreate this in my mind. But yeah, I, I mean, maybe this is a testament to how seamless the controls generally feel, but I was absolutely running towards edges and then hitting. I'm going to I'm going to guess it was a because that again, it's the one that um, it's the button that does things. Right. If it's not just whatever you want to do, that's not already mapped. Yeah. Elsewhere. In the context of running towards a ledge, the a it makes should sense. Jump. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I was pushing that uh, and I did not need to. And I did not figure that out for a very long time. So once you did figure it out, did you, I, I, apparently the auto jump worked well for you. It didn't seem like a hindrance. No, it was great. And again, at the time, this was something that. People, I think, were pretty concerned about this mm-hmm. idea of, you know, that Link would just jump automatically, that you wouldn't control the jump. And mm-hmm. it was especially jarring for the team who just developed Mario. Mario, yeah. <laughs> don't jump. And this is another example of uh, Miyamoto meddling, where he says that, you know, he just had this idea one day uh, on the weekend and then, you know, came into work <laughs> on Monday. Is like, guys, we're not doing jumps in this one. <laughs> yeah. And came in on Monday and said, yeah, we're going to do this thing called the auto jump. It's going to be great. Talks about this in that Iwata Asks interview. And one of the reasons he really liked it is because then they could they could modify the jump animation depending on the depending mm. on the context. So if Link was jumping off, you know, a cliff to dive into the water, he could have a different animation than if he was just, you know, hopping over a small gap or making a huge leap. Right. But yeah, in the end it worked. And this is still something that we don't see that frequently. Yeah, I can't think of another game I've played that has this, I don't think. Um I think it it has an interesting impact on uh, the sort of light platforming elements of this game, which is that it removes a lot of the the margin of error that you would have if you were fully in control of your jumps. Like one thing I'll say is in a lot of the dungeons, you're you do have to jump from platform to platform over water, or lava, mm-hmm. or whatever you have that you have to make these jumps, and like. With this, unlike with a game where you have that more manual control over your jump, if you you know do your best to launch off the side and don't make a jump, right. you know that you just can't make that jump. Right. It's not that you just didn't do it well enough and you're going to spend a bunch of time trying to refine mm-hmm. it. It just is like you can make it or you can't. The game will just do it. Like yeah. that's Yeah. And in this case, right, the auto jump is such a great way to differentiate this game from Mario. We talked about last time how the mm. developers from the Mario team really just saw this as like Imagine that Zelda is kind of an extension of Mario. Mm-hmm. And this is one way to really state very clearly from a design perspective, the the goal of this is not precision platforming. Yeah. We're going to take that away from you. The goal is to solve these puzzles. Right. And right. you're not going to be able to not solve a puzzle because you can't make a jump. Right. Or be able to cheat stuff because you're too good at jumping. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, on the flip side, like it, it really makes it, okay, figure out what you need to do as opposed to this sort of test of skill that you always, you know, aren't quite sure whether you're supposed to be get, getting it this way or what you need to figure out. So yeah, I, I appreciate that. It it makes platformy sections not platformy in a way that, you know, it certainly doesn't hurt the game. Like we don't need it. I didn't miss it. 
And then the one big question that I think emerged last time that I need to ask you, did you find cutting the grass fun? This was a huge concern for Miyamoto <laughs> in the transition to 3D. That cutting, cutting the grass is no longer fun. Sure. I mean, I, I just, I, I don't think that cutting the grass is maybe as important as Miyamoto <laughs> thinks it is. <laughs> I mean, I think the larger point he was getting at there is that he was concerned that in the transition to 3D, the experience of just being in the world wouldn't be as fun, that mm. there'd be fewer kind of moment to moment things that would be pleasurable and that the 3D nature of the game and the 3D spaces might just be an impediment to to enjoyment. I mean, this is something we even talked about. You know, you talked about loving the density of yeah. the 2D map in Link's Awakening and yeah. the concern that maybe we'd be moving away from that. So I guess the, the bigger question is, in the transition to 3D, was the world as fun to engage with? Yeah, I mean, I think what we have here is a trade-off of design priorities where we lose a bit of density, but we gain something like um, organicness. I mean, one of the things I'm thinking about um, in this topic is the opening tutorial section in Kokiri Village, where, you know, instead of having a guy who comes and tells you how to fight with a sword and pick up bushes and do all this stuff, you sort of are, are left to explore this village, find someone to talk to, stumble through this little fenced maze area <laughs> that is just set up as like a gauntlet for you to run. Um, you know, crawl through a hole for the first time, get your sword, do something like there's it it relies on you to stumble through this space in a way that gives you what you need to know. And it just feels fun and and playful. And there's like there's an airiness and a non-directionalness to it that I really appreciated. So it it does. We have less density here, although I I think a lot of that is just moved into the dungeons, right? Like, I I think um, we, we just have a little bit more of a lived-in overworld. Uh, and I think that works completely fine for this game. I liked it just fine. Yeah, so let's talk about this overworld. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Because I'm really curious about how you felt entering Hyrule Field for the first time. Because yeah. for me as a kid, this was pretty magical and impressive. When you move out of your, you know, out of Kokiri Village, out of this... You know, what seems, again, for me, seemed like a, an enormous space at the yeah. time. But then when you realize how tiny that is in relation to the rest of the game, entering into Hyrule Field was really, really meaningful. Um, but I wonder if that's, has that process become, you know, too common to be impressive? I mean, one of the first games you played when you started getting back into games was Fallout 3, which does the exact yeah. same thing. <laughs> right? You move from your... Your vaults. They move from your vault into the vast world that's, you know, many, many times bigger than Hyrule Field is. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I think I did not have the uh, experience that you had. And that's not to say that I didn't have a good experience, but I, I didn't feel awe necessarily stumbling into Hyrule Field. I Truthfully, my very first reaction to it was just a tiny bit disappointed because I think I hadn't seen enough of the game yet to be really, really sure that the game was still going to give me that like really tightly designed uh, spatial experience, which mm. it would give me later, but I just, I, it hadn't built that trust with me yet. And so what I saw was an, a field that quite big, you know, I can see where Hyrule Castle is. There's the, the, um, the ranch in the middle. Um, and it, it felt a little bit empty. And I think that's what would have felt to you as like vast. Right. Yeah. Um, and 
it just that's not how it hit me up front. And I think that's a function of the fact that, as you said, I've played games on much bigger scales than this since. So, yeah, I think that was lost in translation a little bit. I mean, as I mentioned, um, you know, by the time I figure out that I can go to this castle, I can check out what's going on at the ranch, I'm going to be able to do all this running around. I sort of stopped being bothered by this pretty quickly. But yeah, at first blush, I was a little like, oh, okay. Like, it's a big, okay. Yeah, it's it big and empty, but it there is a lot still to find there. There's a lot of heart pieces you can find that, you know, you're not aware of existing. There's a lot no, there's a lot underneath Hyrule Field. Sure, sure, yeah. sure, sure. Yeah, once once you actually get into it, I was kind of shocked by how much content there is uh, in the overworld generally, not just in Hyrule Field, but also in the sort of pre-dungeon areas that you that you get that don't really exist so much in in mm-hmm. like Link's Awakening. So yeah, there ends up being a whole lot to do in the overworld. It just it's a there's a different feel to it. Yeah, one thing I think I was still struck by was the variety of things to do in the world, right? So you have, mm-hmm. I mean, you have all these things to find, like the Sculptulas to find. Um, you have the fishing mini game. Yep. Did you do any fishing? I did some fishing. I didn't get the biggest fish, but I did some fishing. Okay. Again, to go back to 1998, it was mind-blowing that this pretty robust fishing game existed right. within this game. Right. There's a whole other game inside this game. Yeah. And a lot of reviews at the time, I remember saying, you know... Other companies would release this as a standalone game. Okay. <laughs> they wouldn't just put it in. But I don't know how fun that standalone game would have been, to be totally honest. I but love the fishing. I understand that it was a time. <laughs> yep, there's those at Hyrule Field. You meet the scarecrows for the first time that you can play a song to and they remember it. You right. can revisit it later. Yeah, like there's just some weirdos hanging about. There's a lot of mini games in general in this game. Yeah. And what I really was kind of impressed by is how it's still so cohesive. It's something that I think is missing from a lot of open world games in the Grand Theft Auto style, mm-hmm. where this it's it's all these things just exist in a world and you kind of move between, you know, doing your quests and then doing these mini games pretty mm-hmm. seamlessly. Like, you know, when you played Grand Theft Auto, you really the kind of jarring disconnect between the missions, like, you know, when you're yeah. in an official mission and when you're, you know, goofing around. Yeah. Uh, it's just not present in this game. Everything just feels like you're in one big cohesive world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think also the other thing that really impressed me in the overworld is this is where you first figure out the day-night cycle. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, Which, yeah, uh, seeing that transition, like I had that transition happen before I got to Hyrule Castle for the first Mm, time. mm -hmm. So I had the experience of it becoming dusk and then the zombie things coming out of the ground and like the castle drawbridge having gone up, like all that stuff is so, so cool. Yeah, again, day-night cycle was something that I hadn't seen before at that point. I was and- utterly not expecting that. And it works so well and it makes so much sense with like the big the game's bigger themes about time and change and cycles and all that kind of stuff. Like it it's such a neat addition to this game and I like it so much and it just it took me by surprise. Yeah, and I mean I found that utterly terrifying. I was so scared whenever it turned to <laughs> night. Whenever you hear the howl of the wolf, yeah. you know. That's going to trigger, you know, the skeletons coming out of the ground. And they'll just keep coming for as long as, you know. Yeah, I was so relieved to find the sun song. That was the <laughs> one of the biggest moments of relief in the game when I learned that I can control the day night. I don't think it, I unless I had to for some game reason. Yeah. Or like or if I was look, looking for sculptures or something, I don't think I ever You would let not it tolerate night. night. No. Immediately play the song, switch it back. You could just run. I was also scared of those re-deads, like those zombies oh, with that yeah. scream. The that, shriek, yeah. yeah. 
yeah, yeah. And they yeah. can freeze you. That's fair. I understand why that would be scary. I found those way scarier than uh, Unagi in Mario 64. Oh, my God. You fool. You maniac. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of hard to talk about Hyrule Field because, you know, there's the field, but then the locations are pretty well connected to it. Yeah. You do usually have to go through, you know, a transitional load screen yeah. to enter them. But we can, I think we can consider all of those towns even as part of the overworld. Yeah, for sure. There's there's much more of a fade between sort of the overworld and the dungeon. Like I, some of those pre-dungeon areas I really, really mm. like. I think Hyrule Castle, the environment, and not meaning the building, like the Hyrule like the Castle town, town yeah. Yeah, um, is really special. And again, full of perfect Zelda weirdos <laughs> and like strange minigames, different ones at night, like weird Lady with the Lost Dog, like just just perfect it feels like a perfect little castle town there's multiple screens you can go to the temple you can go to get like it's just it's so so great and again like that day night cycle um the the changes that it undergoes over the course of the game are so impactful like you spend enough time there and you see it with enough life in it that when you go to the time forward part the first thing you awaken back to is this um castle town that has been completely destroyed Mm -hmm. it's in shambles it's dark it's full of the those like shrieker zombie things like it just it i was honestly like a bit shaken by how different and how like bereft it feels like it's yeah this game does such a good job i think and and even still uh with those separate areas making them all feel like very special discrete spaces mm-hmm. that are still part of this you know this world as a whole but maybe you saw this in Link's Awakening maybe with the Animal Village where you got a sense of this right but you know in Link to the Past and Link's Awakening there'd be different zones yeah but they didn't feel so distinct yeah it's and- not like going up Death Mountain to Goron City like that's it's it's such a such a well-designed specific place that has its own inhabitants and its own cycles and its own life yeah what do you think about all you know like the different races having you actually get to see you know how they live you actually get to see a city that they love in in all the cases love it love it the goron city is where uh i retire when all my adventures are done (laughs) i love the goron king we're two brothers for life um yeah, I that's so so sweet. Um Kakariko Village is also like I I felt like I formed such a bond with that place because of how many different you know how many times you go to that village for how many different reasons <laughs> over the course of this game. It manages to not feel like that thing where you're like, "Oh god, I have to go back there." Okay, back to this same thing again. Um every time it's like, "Oh, there's something else going on with the graveyard. There's a there's a new thing I have to figure out with this well." Like there's there's something to do every time. There's something dynamic that's happening every time. Like it it just all all that stuff. This feels so much more like an inhabited world, even than um, I think Link's Awakening did. Like this world has people in it on a much bigger scale, mm-hmm. uh, and characters in it even on a bigger scale. I would say than Link's Awakening. Yeah, I remember playing it too. One of the first things that I was so scared about after you do the time jump is what is going to happen to Kokiri Forest. Yeah. Because it's such a nice secluded place that seems so safe and protected. And, and it's then, all kids. Like it has this like innocent yeah. sweetness to it. And then the second you, you know, you kind of learn that something might be amiss there. Uh, and I mean, clearly the world's gone to hell in that time. Yeah. That was, 
I think, yeah, I was so hesitant to go back and so scared of what I might find. And- I felt that a bit for Kakariko Village, mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like a little bit of dread, like what's yeah. going to have happened to everybody there. Which, yeah, for a game, any game, uh, you know, let alone a game from 1998 to be able to evoke that. Yeah. Um, with, you know, their clunky, their clunky like polygon characters. And- <laughs> yeah, the, the polygonal character models, I actually love. And I think... <laughs> One of my favorite things about this game ends up being wrapped up in the Gerudo, who I think like in the logic of this game are these like very beautiful statuesque, like kind of sexy, like lady warriors. But they're like a clown ass bunch of polygons (laughs) in real life. And I think that saves it for me, actually, like in a weird way. Like, I think that makes it work. Same thing with the um, I don't know how to describe them, but to call them the big titty fairies. (laughs) That also, there's like, it's like saved from an ugly horniness by being like clunky and clowny. What did you think the first time you got to a fairy fountain and saw that that's what the fairies look like? I thought um, like drag queen a little bit. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Were you surprised? Yes, I was surprised. (laughs) I was surprised. But yeah, I think I think in some cases the um, the polygon stuff like saves this game from itself Mm. a tiny bit. (laughs) like. Good work. Good work. Weird triangles that are an entire face. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited for you to play some more Zelda games and see where they went with the fairies in the future with some more graphical refinement. I wonder. Uh, but for now, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll talk about maybe the core of this game. It's dungeons. Yes. back and let's talk about these dungeons yeah um these are these are such a clear development from the ones in Link's awakening i one of the things that really struck me is that especially the ones that you do as adult link they are definitely more uh complex and the puzzles are a little take a little bit more puzzling than (laughs) previous ones i guess i i guess partially i was wondering was this considered like pretty hard when people when it came out because I imagine if you weren't if you also weren't already super used to working in 3D space I found these very hard I can tell you that yeah I found them hard and as I mentioned before even at this point I wasn't completely well versed in the Zelda okay grammar Mm -hmm. you know I was coming to these dungeons which I agree that even if you are familiar with Zelda some of them can get pretty difficult and then not even knowing the basics <laughs> yeah it like for example the first dungeon the um deku tree yeah which now going back to it now having after having played a bunch of zeldas you know since and going back it, it is very much the intro tutorial dungeon mm-hmm. to me as a kid that it felt enormous mm-hmm. and difficult like I, I it probably took me more than one session to get through mm. and uh, yeah it just felt like how how is this possible and this is so big. How could how am I going to get through it? 
I do think the first dungeon, um, which is the Deku Tree, is a pretty good thesis statement for what um, the game is going to do with its dungeons, especially the first, you know, part where you're young Link. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like this dungeon so much. I mean, it is it is a little tutorially, but you also have some of these uh, really great flourishes. You have um, this huge emphasis on verticality. Uh, you have yeah, which was incredibly important to do in the first dungeon, I think, because this is signaling. Okay, this is what's fundamentally different from all the other Zelda dungeons you've played. Right. Right. right, And so we're going to make a dungeon where you have to deal with the fact that you're in 3D space, there's things above you mm-hmm. and below you, and make that kind of the core conceit of the dungeon. I think that was, a it, like, in retrospect, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I really like also how a lot of the emphasis in the, this dungeon is about doing things that uh, fundamentally change mm. the, the shape of the dungeon and the mm-hmm. world. Like, one of the most satisfying things in this whole game is, like, when you enter this dungeon, you walk straight into this sort of open area and there's a hole in the floor, in the middle of the floor, that's covered with webs. So you can walk over it perfectly fine at the start. And of course, you know, one of the first things that the dungeon is going to get you to do is scale up this sort of cylindrical room up to the highest level so that you can jump off it and crash through that web with enough momentum to actually break through it and get into the lower levels of the space. And just like, you know, from the moment I saw it, I was like, oh, how am I going to break through this web? I know I'm going to have to break through it somehow. And then realizing, like, as soon as you realize you're going up, 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 putting together, oh, I'm going to jump off and I'm going to crash through that. It makes so much sense. It feels so intuitive, but it feels so cool. Yeah, it's it's very much one of these puzzles where the solution is the thing that you you want to do anyway. Yeah, that will be the most rad. <laughs> yeah. Like even if that was just a floor, of course you're going to jump from the highest point. Yes. And then instead of resulting in your death, it's actually the way to progress. Yeah. It's good. No, it's for it, the first dungeon especially. It's so so fun. Um and another similar thing that that also felt incredible for me was figuring out that you can burn away spider web with the like a lit torch thing. Mm-hmm. Well, not a torch though, because this is something that I really like about this game. And this was a a thing that sort of was the next step forward in me being like, oh, this is good. You don't get a torch. Enemies in this game don't drop things like torches. They drop things like a stick. <laughs> and, you know, when you equip a stick, you pick it up. You can do a bunch of different stuff with it. Stuff you could do with the stick. You can hit guys with it. It's not very effective, but you can do that if you want. It'll break. It only has so many uses. You can light the tip of it on fire. Like It's up to you to figure out what use you can put this to. And things like pulling out the stick and holding it up to a lit lantern and figuring out, oh, yeah, I can light this on fire and swinging it around to clear out a bunch of webs like that stuff. It just it makes sense. It's so organic. It feels so good. You feel like you're impacting the space. Um, it just it's it's just so neat. It feels so good to be in this dungeon, even for a relatively simple sort of maze thing. Yeah, I think the versatility of those objects, especially in the early dungeons, is really, really strong mm-hmm. and might be one of the weaknesses of the later dungeons where you're getting items that are much less versatile. Mm-hmm. And I think this is this becomes a criticism of some of the Zelda games before Breath of the Wild, where you enter a dungeon, especially the later ones, and you get an item, a special item that you use in that dungeon and then you never use again. Okay. Or there's there's no versatility to that object. It's it's used for, you know, five 
possible purposes right. in this one space. <laughs> you know, use five times and then you never you never even look at it again. Okay. Yeah. So I really going back and I really love using yeah, just you know, the sticks. Yeah. Just give me a stick. Yeah. That's all I need. They're I'm your, a kid. They can be your weapon if you need them to be. Yeah. Light things on fire. Yeah. Building the puzzles around things that make sense within the environment. Mm-hmm. Such a great idea. Yeah. And you have your class you get a slingshot in here and you you have your classic boss that you fight using the extension of mechanics that you practiced with similar enemies earlier on in the you know right, you the have classic, the spiders yeah. yeah yeah the zelda the zelda formula where yeah you get the thing in the dungeon then use that thing on the boss to show that you have learned how to use the thing yeah in this case the slingshot yeah and i think um i think in some ways it's saved from being too like predictable or mathematical in that formula by some of what happens around the dungeon like one of the things that i that I also really like, and this is this like hits that um, that Zelda sweet spot for me is that like you win this dungeon, you defeat this dungeon, and the result of that is that the Deku tree dies. Yeah, sad. Yeah, it's so sad, um, and that's just like that's classic Zelda, man. That's <laughs> as I now understand it. It's like that that little bit of melancholy seeping into. Um, the sweet, cool playfulness of of some of the mm-hmm. some of the spaces, um, and you know when Link returns to Kokiri Village, he I felt like he's changed. Like mm-hmm. all the other NPCs react to him differently. They're all like, "Oh, you went to the Deku Tree!" Like it's and then you killed him. Yeah, um, like it. It really you feel like Link has been transformed, and his relationship with that village has also been transformed by what he did. Um, and that's the first dungeon. Mm-hmm. Dungeon one, you have had this whole experience with a whole town that completely changed its opinion of you from being like, you ain't shit, get out of here. You're never going to be shit. You're not passing through here. There's like a bully who you can't <laughs> like overpower. Experience. Yeah. A uh, little snot-nosed kid um, to them being a little bit like, oh, wow. Um, okay. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah. It's a like taken as a whole, the Kokiri Village as a tutorial area. That gives you pretty much a, a full like little subplot arc. Yeah, is is so strong. Yeah, and, and I agree that you leave that knowing everything now that you need to know for the rest of the game. So mm-hmm. it serves that purpose, but also yeah, you got this this really um, self contained prologue. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just so excellent. So one thing about these dungeons, because you mentioned uh, with the Deku Tree, and this is true of a bunch of other ones is that the process of going through the dungeons is about changing the dungeon itself, mm-hmm. right? These dungeons really make you think about the space of the dungeon as a whole rather than being a series of discrete little puzzle rooms. Right. And I'm curious because in Link's Awakening, there was one dungeon that really did that, which was the Eagle's Tower. <laughs> and you hated that dungeon. Um, oh, who even remembers <laughs> why I hated that dungeon? <laughs> and you hated it because... I don't know because of, but one of the who things, even remembers? And maybe it was the fact that it was the only, like one of the only dungeons in the game that did this that made you think about the the space of the dungeon as a whole rather than you mm-hmm. know solving puzzles in the rooms to get the keys. Uh, but now you get a game that's pretty much all Eagles Tower. Yeah, and you seem to like it. Yeah, I'm into it in this one. Okay. <laughs> I don't have really a smart explanation for why that is, other than I think my. If I remember correctly, which maybe I do and maybe I don't, a large part of my issue with Eagle's Tower wasn't the fact that it makes you think about the space as a whole, but just that it goes too far for that game and for what that game's 
capabilities and boundaries are in the amounts that you have to double back and weave back through the space and and the the sort of grasp that you need to have over the geography, I think. Hmm. Or I might have just been mad that I didn't figure out that you could take the pillars down. <laughs> Truly, it could be either. <laughs> but in in this one, I really, really like that. Um, I love one of my favorites. I, I, you know, I think probably the like best dungeons, I would argue, are the Shadow and the Spirit Temples. But but one of the ones that I really loved um, was the Forest Temple. That's sort of the first one you do uh, post when you come back as an adult. Right, post the time skip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and sort of like the Deku Tree before it, uh, it kind of exemplifies what's going to be strong about the back like three quarters of the game. Mm-hmm. You have this really clear mission statement up front, you know, where the the Deku Tree has, here's the spider web you're going to break through. This one has... You open up to this great room with different paths leading off from it in the middle. There's a thing with four lamps, clear four corners. And as you start working through the pathways that are available to you, you're going to find these different particular ghosts and defeat them. And it's going to a light. A lamp is going to light. Um, there's there's this clarity of what the holistic design is going to be about. But then also you have this really good, intense like navigation and puzzling and 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 fighting and moving things around and changing whether doorways are unlocked and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, twisting a hallway and then untwisting a hallway. Man, I, yeah, I was just about to build to that. So that. Oh, sorry. Th- no, that's okay. This is one of the coolest things. Is at one point you because there's this little bit of ghostiness in this forest <laughs> thing, which also rules haunted forest. Mm-hmm. Very good. Um, one of the things that happens is that you have there's a hallway where it just twists like 90 degrees like so you're you know you're still obviously walking upright but like it's as if you're walking on the wall by the end of it if that makes sense and then the the room that it leads to at the end has also rotated in that way and so as you manipulate the world it twists in different ways and it manipulates the gravity in that room like what is upright so that you are, you know, you end up going to doorways that were like on the ceiling when you first went in there. It's, uh, I think it's both a pretty stunning design choice and also um, surprising how like organic it feels. Mm. Like it really, it doesn't feel, sometimes when you have cool um, like level design things like that, I find they feel really like we really want you to notice what's going on here. We want you to see how clever it is. Like, please pause and appreciate it. This one, like I think the first two times I went into this room, I didn't even fully process that things had actually rotated. It just does that. And so um, this one is, it's just so impressive. It's so cool. You've got secret passages through a well, you know, you've got all these different um, uh, vines you have to climb up to different levels of of this little castle thing that you're navigating. It just, it's it's so great. It's so great. They We also introduce um, the scary hand. Oh, the, the wall master. Is that what it's called? He's called the wall master. Okay. He, yeah, he is terrifying. He this is the scariest thing in this game. <laughs> I agree. It's literally just a hand that just appears from above you and will grab you and dump you out at the front of the dungeon. That's it. There are stakes. Yeah, there are stakes. You're so far Unfair into stakes. the dungeon at that point. <laughs> and it happens to me multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. I really like how you kind of talk about this dungeon as like the tutorial dungeon for the back half of the game. Yeah. And I, I think that's that's a really interesting and I think accurate way to talk about it because yeah, just if you haven't played this game, the structure of this game is that you're young Link at first, mm-hmm. 
and your goal is to find the three spiritual stones so you can enter the sacred realm and claim the Triforce before Ganondorf can reach it. Like, yeah. This is a whole thing. Um, and so, yeah, your first, so you have your first three dungeons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you enter the Temple of Time and then... You know, you have the time skip where seven years pass and you have to come out as an adult and then, you know, save the world because Ganondorf has now kind of taken it over. Yeah, a disaster has happened. In yeah, the and, and really, yeah, going to this dungeon first as an adult is really the signal to you that, oh, this is a new level of complexity to these dungeons. Yeah. Like by Jabu Jabu, which is the third dungeon of the young Link, you know, getting the three stone saga. That one's, you know, there's some tricky-ish puzzles in there. Only because he's nasty. <laughs> you just want to get out of there as fast as possible. But but yeah, there's a real shift in yeah. the difficulty of this game when you are adult Link. Like you've matured so much and it's, and yeah, you really do need this other tutorialized um, dungeon to make that clear. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's great highlights also from the period where you are young Link. There's, you know, I... I fell in love with this game properly before I got to be Adult Link, even okay. though I think the best of dungeon and encounter design and all that stuff, I think the a lot of the genius of this game is weighted in the Adult Link section. Right. And, and to be clear, right, when you're Adult Link, you do switch back and forth between yeah. young and old. You are playing with time throughout, which is kind of yeah. another, kind of as you did with Light and Dark in A Link to the Past. Right. Right. Um, Although. But at a different level of sophistication and complexity here. Yeah, there's just this really, really strong dungeon design sort of at every level of um, of this game. And I think um, for me, as I said, one of the strongest temples, the Shadow Temple, is a really great example of how well this game blends like core mechanical design with like uh, sort of aesthetic and flavor flourishes because this dungeon is both a really wonderful like you know maze and com- and puzzly dungeon with like you've got your lens of truth you're finding you know new passageways you're identifying statues that do different things there's hidden doors there's invisible bl- like there's so much cool stuff here you've got the hover boots you're walking on air into new places but then also it is able to meld that with like these weird you know sort of mini bossy enemies that are like a, a zombie blob with all these hands sticking up, you know, at the end you board basically a ghost ship that like takes you sort of, a, it's like a river sticks on the underworld mm-hmm. kind of thing. And the boat crashes and you have to jump off and then you're in a whole different area. Like there's so much flourish. There's so much, you know, this- and just ruined by maybe the worst design boss. How dare you first of all i feel like this is some of this is some of where i see some of the lineage with super mario 64 like one of the things that i think i said in that episode was i just felt this sense of abundance everywhere in that game they just have so many ideas they can't wait for you to see everything they've got just everywhere you look there's something going on they've come up with something new um and I, I feel that also in in these sorts of moments when they're like, oh, towards the end, let's get them get on this ship. And they're eating, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. it just it's this like childlike, mm-hmm. like, oh, we have this big, cool idea. Mm-hmm. It'll be so cool. And I guess not everyone likes King Bongo Bongo. King I think Bongo they're wrong. Bongo. That's his name. <laughs> not just Bongo Bongo. No, I think his name is King Bongo okay. Bongo. I, whatever. He's a king to you. So why don't you, why, why do you not like him? I agree that he's goofy. I think too goofy. I don't like the, and this actually goes back to Mario 64 because they have this, like the floating hand. Yeah. 
where you have to hit an eye, whether that eyeball is in the hand or yep. separate from the hands. I just don't like that style of boss. Okay. In general. it's. I guess it kind of is, I don't know if cooler is the word here because he's <laughs> hitting bongo drums. It, why is he? Why does he have big bongos in a ghost temple? That's not a ghost. Like, do ghosts play the bongos? I think it's playing with some sort of otherworldly, not quite like voodoo-ish, but like um, sort of ritualistic kind of thing. So I think one thing that's cool about this is once you know who the boss is going to be, you realize you have been hearing Bongo Bongo's drums through the entire temple. Like it's in the music of this entire space, this yeah, like specific rhythm just, that he's got. Yeah, just a big hippie. <laughs> I guess. I mean, I think just Matthew McConaughey. I, I his backyard. I love a set piece. That's one thing, and this is absolutely a set piece. Like you, you've got him playing the drums. I love how it bounces you like a trampoline. Like the mm, the way mm. the drum skin bounces you just brought me so back to being on a trampoline in the backyard. And you know when every once in a while you would get a bad bounce with the other person you're <laughs> bouncing with and it would just spike you up in the yeah, air yeah. against your will? Like, I felt like I could feel that in my body. Like, I recognize that feeling. Hmm. Um, and again, like, you know, you're you're using the, the lens of truth to see where his, like, eye thing is going to be. You're taking out the hands and dodging things on this really big scale. You're in this sort of like spooky nothingness. Like there's just black. So this all might be another you. reason that I don't love Bongo Bongo is because I don't love the lens of truth because it's one of those items that you just use sure. in one, you know, in one dungeon and you don't really go back to it. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's true. I mean, you use it in the well, of course, which is where you, where you find, find it, it right. which is sort of the pre area to this. Um yeah, I guess that's fair. I I guess I just don't care. <laughs> fair, like yeah. if you know, if you give me something cool and you put it to a really good fun use in one sure. dungeon, I'm mm. sort of like, okay. Like okay. you know, I sure, we, you know, maybe you would get bonus points if that continues to be really relevant, but I don't think it takes away from this fundamentally for me. And he just feels so big. He just feels <laughs> impossibly big. There's just this That is true. this huge scale where it's like how am I going to how will I ever? How will I ever fight Bongo Bongo? And then you find a way. Link finds a way. <laughs> yeah I, so one of the other honestly coolest areas in the game for me is actually one of these like preamble areas kind of oh yeah like, we haven't really talked about that but yeah yeah there's so much lead up in this game to the dungeons themselves you mm -hmm. usually have to you know solve a bunch of puzzles to locate the dungeon mm -hmm. or go through kind of a mini dungeon to get an item to be able to to be able to access the the real dungeon yeah i want to talk about the gerudo fortress okay i Love the Gerudo Fortress. Okay, this, so this was is, so fun. Was this your favorite of the the mini dungeons? Uh, I think it was the one that was the most fun. Okay. Um, I, Metal Gear Solid never met her. Yeah, so that I was gonna say this is a this is stealth based. I know, which is usually not the thing so, you love to do. Remember our conversation about stealth? I was like, you got to be careful what tools you give me if you're if we're gonna yeah. do stealth. This no cones of sight, no special <laughs> equipment or moves or anything for figure for navigating stealth. You're just running around, watching the walk cycles and where all these guards in this Gerudo fortress are going, and figuring it out. And I love it. Hmm. I love it. This was one of the least frustrating stealth sections in a fundamentally non-stealth game that I've ever seen. When are they this unfrustrating? First of all, everything feels very fair. I don't think there was one time that I got caught that I was like, they should not have been able to see me. 
every time it was either like, oh, I didn't, I straight up didn't see that guard there, which is fine. Now I know they're there. That's perfectly fine. There was a guard around that corner and I didn't look. That's okay. Or it was a time that I took too big of a risk and I knew it was a risk and the risk didn't pay off. That's totally fine. And I think crucially, when you get caught, they just throw you back in this cell. Like it's almost like this, like, again, like playful, fun, kind of low stakes thing where you're not really losing health. It's not like you are so grossly penalized. And I think crucially, the point of this space is to bust these four guys out of prison who are being held in these four different cells scattered through this fortress, right? And there's all these Gerudo who are guarding it. And if they see you, you're caught. And I think a crucial thing that they did here is that there's multiple paths that you can take to go in, in different directions to free these guys, but they they don't rely on you always having passed through the same first spaces. To Like the fourth one isn't just at the end of a very difficult path. It's on a different path than the first one. And so what that means is that like you you never have the sense even when you get caught of like, oh my God, I lost so much progress. It's going to take me forever to get back here. Like your reload to the to the cell is super quick. You're not super penalized. There's not a huge obstacle to you getting out of your cell again. Like you just sort of hookshot out of there. And so you're just you're back at it almost immediately. Okay, because I was gonna I was gonna ask you, because functionally getting caught is the same thing as getting caught by the master hand or the, the wall master. But it's not you're not master hand, you're not twenty game. difficult minutes deep <laughs> right. into a dungeon. Okay. okay. You're like right back there, you're scooting across a couple of rooftops and you're dipping down into that room again to try to just try Mm -hmm. again like your your reload and your ability to just okay like go again is so quick and that saves it from being aggravating um in a way that i just loved it it was just so fun i loved running through this and like skirting like behind their backs and and uh busting my my boys I'm, out i'm actually kind of shocked that you loved the stealth sequence but surprised and uh, did you not shocked. like it it's it's definitely not a moment that stood out as a favorite. Um, <laughs> I had so much. It fun. was more of a something that you have to do to get to the to get to the the real meat of the dungeon, like of the of the actual dungeon. Wild. I had a good time. Um, I, I guess we have to ask you about the water temple. It didn't come up in your in your list of favorites, but this is the one that is the infamous temple. Yeah. So i I feel weird about this one because I think I think i I knew in advance that people are were concerned and don't really love it. I think for me, it was not nearly as bad as I was thinking it was going to be. Mm-hmm. But I think partially that's because I was playing on 3DS. Yeah, so, this is really where the 3DS version pays off in terms of the quality of life improvements. This is even in, in interviews, Aonuma talks about the 3DS version being his chance to do the water temple properly. He just felt so bad that so many people oh. quit there oh. and it haunted him. Oh. And so just a few quality of life improvements. The main one that I think you you felt was not having to go to a menu to swap your iron boots on and off. Yeah. Which you have to you, do so many times. You just have them on the touch screen on the 3DS. So you just plink. Yeah. And then they added some markers, some signposting to the dungeon itself. So you could more easily find the rooms where you could change the water levels. Yeah, which was useful, especially in the you know the first 20 minutes you're in the dungeon mm-hmm. or whatever, when you're still getting your feet under you. Right, because this the whole conceit of this dungeon is that you... It's really a navigation dungeon mm-hmm. more than anything else. And it's 
it's you having to to change the level of the water to be able to access different areas. Yeah, and there's three or four different levels and, and any given pathway you're taking off this main sort of corridor, you're going to have to revisit it with the water at just about every different level. Mm-hmm. It'll be different every time. You can swim to different stuff every time. I think it's kind of remarkable in its cleverness, mm. to be honest. But that said, I also 100% can understand how if you were on the Nintendo 64, this is already the most difficult dungeon, I think. This is the one where I got the most stuck mm. for sure. Adding on to that, if you're in a moment when you're not as used to being in 3D as we are now, and every time you're swapping these boots on and off to sink down or rise up, you're having to dig into this menu. Like I both I both feel that my experience of it was like not that bad and kind of fine. Um, and also completely understand why people were put off by this in, mm-hmm. in the beginning. So I get the reputation. <laughs> I would say if you're playing it for the first time on 3DS, it's not that bad. It's clever. <laughs> Work it through. Okay, so it sounds like you're pretty high on most of the dungeons, even the Water Temple, even the Bongo Bongo. So is there anything about this game that fell flat for you uh, in terms of the dungeons? I would say the only one that I really was not so hot on was uh, Jabu Jabu, who's the third dungeon of your young Link yeah, life. Yeah, you, the... you already called him nasty. Yeah, it's just gross. You're in, <laughs> So your concept, good. You're going inside, like think going inside the whale, you know, mm-hmm. um, and your whole time in there is navigating his guts. It's very biological. Everything is very goopy and organic. <laughs> And it's both, I think, like not the most fun navigation or on a puzzle basis, and also just the the aesthetic and environment of the whole thing. I just, I just didn't vibe with. I just, I thought it was gross. Okay, <laughs> I was gonna think because very membranous, like you know, because the the idea of this one is that you have the princess, Princess Rudo, who's the Zora princess, who's who has been eaten by Jabu Jabu. Yeah, and so you have to find her, and yeah. so you find her, but then you have to carry her around and use her. On pressure placed open doors. (laughs) So this I love. This is like the most, this is the most like dumb, like flat, weird Zelda ass tonal (laughs) thing where it's like you find this princess and she's a little bratty. Also, she's like, well, you're going to have to carry me then. And you literally just hoist her (laughs) cross-legged above your head and use her like a paperweight to like set switches. Like you just plunk her down on stuff. Um, That to me that's that's fun in this game it's like a little stupid and very weird but like i that's like the the link's awakening zelda tone that i that i remember and love but it just is in this flesh prison that i don't want (laughs) to be in (laughs) okay i guess that's uh, a good time then to take a break and we come back we can talk i think a bit more about the zelda tone now that you have two zeldas under your belt really try to um Articulate what it is that makes a Zelda a Zelda for you. Okay, great.
talked about how much you enjoyed the gameplay. We talked about how much you enjoyed the dungeon design. But I think a lot of this is still kind of missing the point, at least yeah. for what <laughs> what makes a Zelda special for you. Because um, every time we talk about this, you you often lead with something a bit more abstract or or intangible. Something about a, a Zelda-ness? Tone. Yeah, like what? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a term I've heard you use. I'm not sure what exactly it means. I, I well, think I have my own ideas. Okay, I was going to ask, do you do you feel like you have a sense of what I mean by Zelda-ness, even I, if it may not be the same as mine? I think so, but okay. I think it would be useful for you to kind of okay. unpack it now that you've done <laughs> the two Zeldas. Okay, so I think one of the things is definitely around tone, like you suggested. I think there's a sort of wistfulness to a lot of these games. There's, as I've said, a sort of absurd straight-faced humor to a lot of it. I think I've been, I've been trying to think about how to describe what kind of adventure or like fantasy or whatever Zelda is. And I think the closest thing I can think of is it's sort of like not the adventure that a kid would imagine, but adventure as contemplated by like uh, cartoon shows about adventure, like the kinds of narrative themes that it's going to pick up or the kinds of design choices it's going to make are always, I think, going to be motivated by fun and surprise. And they're going to be kind of not, not too risky. Like there's like a, there's like a warm, almost like safe, there's a coziness Mm -hmm. about Zelda at the same time that it has this weirdness and this strangeness and this desire to surprise you really frequently. Yeah, I know what you mean. And I mean, we haven't talked much about the story of Ocarina of Time. Mm -hmm. Just like when we talked about Link's Awakening, we didn't talk much about the story. We talked about the ending, which you felt fell a bit flat Mm -hmm. there. Um, But when you're talking about this tone, I think this is really everything that surrounds the story or is that it's kind of tangential to the story. Yeah, yeah. Or at least the main the main plot. For sure. Uh the other thing that is sits weird with me and I wonder what you think about this is I keep almost wanting dis- to describe the Zelda like story or or tonal stuff as being a little bit coming of age, but it's not explicitly that. I but, mean this one was literally. Well, yeah, so this one does make that literal in the sense that you have young Link and adult Link, but there's something like even Link in Link's Awakening is sort of ageless, um, sort of has this like adult boy child sort of hybrid thing. They all kind of adhere to the basic hero's journey structure. Right. right? And really all the games, all the all the Zelda games have the same basic structure. A lot of them hit the same major narrative beats. Mm -hmm. And what's different is kind of the wrapping around them. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't mean that to to make that sound superficial because often that's what the core of the game actually is. It's mm-hmm. it's all these things that are slightly off from the main thrust of the narrative. Yeah, and there's there's so much playfulness in that world building stuff, and so much of the the interest and the flavor sort of lives there. Um, I mean, I think that comes across in enemy design, and it comes across in mission design. These like weird trading quests, like all the the sort of different and unexpected ways that you um, have to interact with the world that isn't directly on your path to Ganon, if that makes sense. Yeah, this is the game, for example, that introduces the mask salesman. Right. Who I don't think you completed that No, I didn't. Line. I did the first two or three. But here's a weirdo, and he's just yeah. selling masks. Yeah. And there are other weirdos in the world who want these masks for various reasons. And yeah, that's a quest. And then I know you've already picked up Majora's Mask, and so you'll learn a bit more about... The mask economy. Yeah, I guess. Um, so yeah, there's there's 
so much so much weird stuff like that. And I mean, also there's a, a lot of this this mood or tone, yeah, lives in the world outside of Link, including there's sort of a recurring feeling of melancholy or I don't know if it's just the fact that we happen to choose Link's Awakening and then Ocarina of Time or if this is in other Zeldas as well. But there's a real, I think, grappling with loss in this mm. as well. And I'm I'm thinking specifically of the feeling that struck me as soon as you wake up as adult Link and stumble out into Hyrule Castle mm. that has been just decimated. I think you really feel the absence of all the people who were there before and the activity and the liveliness and just like the feeling of there being a culture and this being a, a, a mm -hmm. lived in space. And I think that recurs in multiple points. You know, we have fire in uh, Kakariko village. Like mm -hmm. this is a, this is a recurring theme. I mean, like, as you mentioned, right. Link's first experience with adventure is not necessarily a sense of success. It's right. the death of the Deku tree. And I mean, there is right the offshoot, the, the sproutling mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that starts to grow, but it's still right. He, he doesn't get to celebrate his victory. Yeah. And I think the thing that I like about the tone and that makes it so Zelda-y is it doesn't hit that beat in such a hard way that it feels like the game is inherently dark or wants you to feel bad or is like gritty or anything like there's a different way you could write and play all these beats that turns it into like a Batman game. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know what I mean? But it's yeah. very much not that it's it's very much like through almost an optimist's eyes in, in this mm -hmm. really bittersweet way, which I think is just so, so charming. Yeah, I really like that, that it's uh, that it's this kind of sad world, but seen through the eyes of somebody who is who is always optimistic. I think that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. Um, I mean, the the. I, I think I've talked a bunch about how much I like the humor in these games. And I think they, the humor and the playfulness is kind of wrapped together. You have all these really weird characters that sort of have their own like opaque motives and things going on. You know, you Sheik is only the, the most intense of them. But really, in Kakariko Village, you have this carpenter and his weird three or four effeminate sons who are like... <laughs> good for nothings going around the village. There's no like inherent reason or logic for any of that. And you'll meet them later when they've been captured by the the Gerudo. And there's like a weird like gender bent thing, something happening in there where like these men who were very like, like in a, in a different game, I'd probably be willing to call it like a bit of a homophobic animation uh, being captured by these like very stern, stoic, like warrior Amazons. Mm -hmm. But it, instead in this world, they're just like, some of the weird people who live here. There's the couple in Hyrule Village and later in Kakariko Village who are just endlessly twirling in each other's arms and like you can't get a word in edgewise. Right, you yeah. can't like just that weird self-enclosed world of those two people. That's what everyone's that's that's so emblematic of of what is going on in a lot of these. And then the ones that you are kind of forced to interact with are the people at the ranch, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which are your uh, Mario callbacks. Yeah. So I was wrong <laughs> about the idea that those wouldn't be in here. Yeah. Shitty Luigi takes over the ranch. <laughs> I did. Oh, man. Like stumbling out of the um, the desolate Hyrule Castle and going straight to liberating Epona from <laughs> shitty Luigi is the best. Did you, is that 
exactly oh, where your mind went. Yes. The second. You were like, I don't need I'm to see going what's to get going that on horn. in no. Forest and Kakariko Village. I, I went need- straight to get, and I busted Epona out of there. And it feels so good. Like, you have to get her up to enough speed that she can clear the fence and you escape with her. Like, it, oh, it's so good. Who's the better horse, Epona or Agro? <sighs> They're different. <laughs> <laughs> there, there never has to be a best animal. Animals aren't in competition with each other. Only people are. <laughs> so it seems it sounds like you really like this game. Something we often talk about with games that you really love is: was there a moment when mm-hmm. you decided that you really loved this game, where it really hit? Yes, that moment was Dodongo. <laughs> Dodongo. Dodongo specifically. Okay, okay so Dodongo is so- the boss of. Okay, so you're meaning King Dodongo, not the generic Dodongo's, the oh, generic d- creature. Dodongo is the species or something like that? Yeah, and then there's the, you're talking about, so the big one. Hell yeah. The boss. Yeah. That's what you fell in love with. Yes. Okay, okay so let me explain. <laughs> okay, please so, do. So um, King Dodongo is the boss of the sort of earth uh, dungeon that you do, which is the second of three dungeons um, that you do as Young Link to get the earth stone yeah he's associated with the goron village. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so it was right adjacent to that at this point and this is what i love i love the embeddedness of king dodongo in the goron village and its embeddedness in death mountain hmm. so you go on this whole path to get to the goron village in the first place up through death mountain which you've got rolling rocks you've got all kinds of stuff going on it's great you learn about bombs the goron are these little like um like sort of rock trolly kind of looking <laughs> guys but like in a good way um and uh and they're also like bros like they have like dwarf <laughs> features also where they like do forge stuff and <laughs> so you go and and the whole the whole thing of of the dodongo dungeon is that you have this one great room in the middle where there's this prominent um, empty Dodongo skull, like huge, so big. And you have all these catwalks going above it. And wh- one of the things that you have to do for the end goal of that dungeon is to get these two red stones that you will walk above the Dodongo skull and drop them into the eye holes. So the eyes light up and it like comes, it like reanimates a bit and then lets you through the king. That is <laughs> so sick. Like this is just like, so I, when I was little, I was a dinosaur kid. Like, you know, different yeah. kids get different things that they get fixated on. I was a dinosaur kid, like, to the nth degree. And I just, like, that little flame inside me just was <laughs> so excited to, like, drop these gems into the, into the eye yeah, holes okay. and, like, and have that and be rewarded with access to the boss. Like, that, that is so good. Okay, that, so it's the dungeon that... No. Oh, Okay. <laughs> And then, so you go through the skull of this of this Dodongo, and you get to the boss King Dodongo. So, this boss, in some ways, is a bit of a literal 3D update of some things that you've seen before in 2D Zeldas. He's gonna run around the outside of like a circular arena. He's gonna be snap at some point. He's gonna open his mouth real big. You're gonna chuck a bomb in there. Mm-hmm. That's gonna stun him for a second. So you can hit him with his sword. Other than that, he's gonna be trying to trample you and get you right. But Somehow there's lava in the middle, right? And so when you finally take down Dodongo, which also is just fun to chuck bombs into the mouth of a huge thing. It's just fun. It feels good. I like doing it. At the end, he rolls forward and he rolls into the lava and he like rears back. And it's like you he just looks for a minute like one of those 
you know, dinosaur skeletons that gets frozen in tar, like La Brea tar pits. <laughs> like he goes down just like that. And it's just so evocative of like, it's I just so feel sad. like, right. But it's, it's also just like the awe that I feel about dinosaurs generally. It's like such a beautiful shorthand for something really phenomenal. And then when you come out immediately, you are greeted by the king of the Gorons. And what he says to you is you have saved my village from the the King Dodongo, who's whatever, whatever. You are, as of now, we are true brothers. You are true brothers with the King Goron. That's, I just like, I, my, my whole soul just lit up with happiness at this point. Like, I just, I, I love being embraced by this king <laughs> as like, true brothers like i i love that it's just and you're back in the village and you're like one of them so mm-hmm. like you have access to everything everything's and that continues when you meet him again as an adult like you the way you find the fire cavern is you meet his son who he has named after you <laughs> who is rolling around the empty <laughs> goron city and you're gonna find him in the fire temple again where he's gonna trust you with saving his citizens who were like being held captive like it just Mm -hmm. it's this it's this long relationship that feels full somehow despite being uh objectively sort of you know just sketched in um yeah and yeah what's really great about i think of the dungeons is that each dungeon really does come with its own little mini arc its mm -hmm. little mini narrative and often yeah those are so much more interesting than the must defeat ganon to save zelda and save hyrule (laughs) get the triforce that that story that's been told so many times and yeah. will continue to be told. Totally. I think I think for me in that moment, it's just that like they already gave me a, a great satisfying dungeon and a boss fight that was fun. They they didn't need the extra flourish of this animated gesture at, you know, this Dodongo being captured in like the lava and tar and all that stuff. Like they didn't need that. They already had. They already had it. It was already good. But it just this game is going to give you that one extra thing at and, every turn. And for you, that's what makes this a Zelda. Yeah, and that's also what makes this a game that I love. Not just like hmm. it's that it's that extra thing that they will always, always, always try to push and give you. I mean, also, I I could say a lot about the phantom ganon fight which is probably my favorite boss fight in the game okay so this is in the forest temple that you've already spoken about yeah i think i even like this better than the ganondorf or ganon fights at the end to be totally honest oh and we are going to talk about ganon and ganondorf yeah Um, because i did learn the difference kind of (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah this is just like this is an incredible boss fight like you have you're in this abstract space with with paintings on four walls around you that you see Ganon riding in one of the paintings towards you on a horse and you have to hit him just as he leaps out of the painting and and like over your head and then eventually you knock him out of the paintings after he like disappears a couple more times and then he's going to be off his horse he's going to be hovering in the air he's going to be firing these like magic bolts at you that you have to volley back at him mm-hmm. um this it, is at the, increasing difficulty i think this is the remnants of the let's make zelda like mario 64 with all the paintings this is the <laughs> it's like okay just this, this is one. the residue of that we'll idea. do one yeah. we'll do one it's it's so cool it's so fun it prefigures some of what you're gonna have to do in the fight with ganondorf when you mm. get there mm-hmm. in terms of the the volleying and all that stuff um and it just like two independent good like really strong phases. The painting stuff is so memorable. It's so cool. 
Um, I I just it it strikes such a good note right out the gate for your like adult link time. Um, I just love that boss fight. It's it's so fun. It feels so good by the time because you've hit him so many times by the time you take him down. Also. <laughs> Which, you know, it works in this context. So it's just, it's that kind of thing. It's it's just, there's going to be a little extra flourish everywhere. That's just more than what another game would bother to do. Yeah, I know these games are just full of flourishes. Things that seem excessive. Or, yeah. Or things that are literally excessive, but they really are the things, the foundations of the world and that makes the world feel real and special. Yeah. Um, and yeah, many of them you might not even... No, like you, you can just stumble upon them. Yeah. Um, can I tell you about, so I don't think we've even talked about this too much yet, but you learn all these different songs on the ocarina. That... Right. We haven't even, we, we can just scratch the surface with this game. We haven't even <laughs> talked about the music. Yeah. Probably not mu- going to oh. be able to talk about the music in yeah. too much detail. But so you're learning all these different songs on the ocarina that have different, you know, some of them transport you to a place or have other effects on the world. Um, one of them that you learn is Epona's theme, which you use to call Epona to you if you're on the overworld. But one of the other things that you can do at one point is you meet these cows. And if you meet a cow in your travels and you play Epona's theme on the ocarina, the cow will say to you in words somehow um, that it reminds them of the open field. And (laughs) it made them feel so good that they have produced some extra milk that you can have. (laughs) And you can take their milk in a bottle and it's like a healing thing that you can get. You just, these cows in captivity, you play this song that this horse gave you and it reminds me of the open field. They're like, ah, yes, I remember. Like that's, (laughs) that is the like weird, but sweet, but melancholy. That is the tone in a nutshell. And and I will say this, if we want to talk about the music just really quickly, that this game really does turn the music into a thematic because there are so many of these instances where the game is about the connections between music and memory Mm -hmm. and the thing that carries link between the kind of his, his past and his future, you know, Young Link and Old Link are the songs he carries with him on the ocarina. Yeah. Uh, where, yeah, with Epona's song, you learn it as a child, and then she remembers you when you play it as an adult. Yeah. Um, in another case, I think in my favorite case, is when you learn the song of storms, where you just see that mm. weirdo windmill guy Yeah. as adult Link, and he tells you about a thing that hasn't happened yet. Right. He says there is this shitty little kid with an ocarina. <laughs> and you're like, hmm. And that, yeah, cues to you that you need to go back in time. And then revisit him and be a shitty little kid. Yeah. So and play the song he hates yeah. <laughs> in his face. Yeah. So he gets real mad and spins the windmill extra fast. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, same with, yeah, that's how that's how you play around with the scarecrows. It's, yeah. I think it's, it really, it's not just an ocarina for ocarina's sake. It's really thinking about, okay, well, how can, how can music be incorporated into this thematic of time travel? Yeah. Well, and even um, the presence of Zelda's lullaby, which is one right. of the first songs you learn, but this one makes sense even in the world because you all over the place will encounter the the sort of crest or symbol of the Zelda royal family. I'm sure they're not called the Zeldas, but whatever. <laughs> they, the Hyrule like, royal family, which kind of makes sense because they rule over this. Like, you know, I can buy that. And all these different, very magical, very epic, very grandiose things happen when you play the mm-hmm. ocarina, when you play um, Zelda's lullaby at the right time in front of these crests. So all that stuff is is so good. So yeah, any just other memorable weird things that happened? Spider House. Oh yeah, the, the um, there's yeah. A, a house with a, a bunch of a bunch of kids been turned into spiders. You got to go Skulltula house. Yeah, yeah, kill the the Skulltulas. So if you come back, one of them will have been retransformed into a human like child. It's it gives you a wallet. G- yeah, it gives it's you creepy. some random thing. Um, 
if you you can kill a ghost and put it in a bottle, and then, and then if you equip it and go to use it, which I thought would I don't know release it something like that, you chug it. You just you knock it back like a freshman with their first beer. <laughs> you like have you? It's so weird and it heals you. I I was just not expecting that to happen. Um, I mean, there, yeah, there's there's so much we could say. Like pretty much everyone you meet in Hyrule Castle is a weirdo. Like it just it's it's truly truly a wonder of characters. <laughs> <laughs> the weird scientist in Lake Hyrule who's trying to study the bottom of the bottom of the lake that he can't reach like and okay and if we're going to move away from the tangential characters to some of the the main characters we just have to was it satisfying to finally learn the mystery that has been (laughs) (laughs) nagging away at you for years apparently the reason we created the podcast (laughs) (laughs) not not knowing what the difference is or if there even was a difference between a Ganon and a Ganondorf. This is where you learn, I think, the most, especially up until this point, about Ganon's backstory. Uh-huh. Uh, and you learn about his history as the human thief Ganondorf. Okay. So here's what I know about Ganondorf. King of the Gerudo, Gerudo, female race. Once a generation or 100 years or something, one male will be born. Who is their king? Okay. Let's not look too closely at that. That sucks <laughs> on its face, but whatever. Take that as a given. That is Ganondorf. Um, he's the thief king. He goes and takes over a bunch of stuff. He's the big bad that you, well, sort of the big bad that you fight in this. So I wouldn't say that I 100% understand what mechanically happens when you kill Ganondorf and then escape the tower and then Ganon emerges. He uses his Triforce of Power. Okay. And it transforms him into the beast. And then his Which is Ganon. beast form is called Ganon. Okay. Is that a relationship between the dwarf and the man that persists across Zelda's, or is that specific to this one? The This, I think, was the first one that used the dwarf okay. nomenclature. Mm-hmm. It does persist into the future. For example, Wind Waker has him in his human form, and he's referred to as Ganondorf. Okay. Okay. So is it something like whenever Ganon is incarnated as a human, or like uh, at least as a humanoid race in this world he's the dwarf yeah the human form okay. of ganon is the ganon dwarf okay the persistent and when he evil looks like animating spirit a boar, is... okay that he's ganon okay okay i mean so if that's all there is to that and i don't mean that dismissively then yes no, that's, that's what that's i understood kind of all there is to okay. that it and wasn't a huge uh it doesn't need more honestly huge it twist. doesn't this is zero points deducted for this <laughs> but yeah so i am happy that i that i understand at least that distinction now <laughs> okay great so i think we should start wrapping up but do you have any last words things you need to get off your chest about zelda that won't be covered in your score that i'm sure you've prepared oh my score is quite extensive it covers <laughs> a lot Okay, so let's just quickly check in on your predictions to see how you did. I asked you if you thought you'd learn the difference between Ganon and Ganondorf. That was a bit of a layup. You were right. You absolutely did, kind of, to the extent that there is. (laughs) Asked you which is not a character you'd encounter, Impa, Asha, Navi, or Ingo. You knew that Navi was a character, even though that's what I thought would trick you, but you thought Ingo wasn't going to be a character, and that is. He's the shitty Luigi. He's shitty Luigi. Ask you if there'd be Mario references. Ingo gets you, know you there again. Was. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you got. God damn. Um, yeah, Talon and Ingo are <laughs> basically Mario and Luigi. Yep. Ask you if you jump. You said yes. You do jump. Ask yeah, you, although I, I, 
I was unclear. I didn't say, will you press a button to no, jump? You, I'll give you, you this didn't. one. I'll give it to yeah, you. Yeah, I think in my in my head and soul, I was wrong, but I was right <laughs> about the answer. <laughs> Asked if you'd obtain the Triforce. You said yes. You mm-hmm. do not. Correct. There are a lot of early screenshots of this game where you showing Link holding the Triforce. So- they must just animate, like, well, Mock like, that up for every Well, I think game. in early versions, he did obtain it at some point, mm. and they made their way in, and people obsessed, thinking there must be a way. And that was a, oh. that was almost a Can You Revive Aerith level okay. myth for a while. Okay. Right, our question that people had. <laughs> Asked you, what is one dungeon theme you'll encounter besides water? You said wind. No wind one in this one. No, there is a very windy section in the desert preamble to the Spirit Temple, no. where you have yeah. It doesn't count. No, All there right, is, fine. but it doesn't count. <laughs> like, yeah, there is. <laughs> like the sandstorm? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. All right. Messed you where Zelda was. You thought she was kidnapped by Ganon and or Ganondorf. She was chic. Yeah, I was wrong about that. If anything, she was, yeah, yes. She was guiding you along the path and doing her magic tricks. She was my companion who was mysterious and then goes, poof, I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Do you want to just uh, wrap up with your score? Absolutely. For its airy, epic opening that is a complete call to adventure unto itself, plus 10. For making young Zelda look kind of bald, minus 2. <laughs> for the exploration-driven tutorial, plus 5. For the weird, small, one-line characters that inhabit every corner of every town, plus 20. For the owl's weird, symmetrical, upside-down face, plus 10. For reuniting me with Malin, who gives me an egg that hatches to wake up Bizarro Mario, plus 15. For animating a whole-ass dust cloud just for when Bizarro Mario wakes up and runs away, plus 6. For letting me pillage the Zelda family tomb, plus 8. For turning a Zora princess into a paperweight, plus 10. For the impact of seeing a destroyed Hyrule castle and the empty Goron village and Zora's domain frozen over, plus 35. For telling me about how I drove the Windmill Keeper nuts as a kid and then letting me go do that, plus 12. For giving me a mini-adventure on the way to each dungeon, plus 20. For the Scary Hand, plus 18. For the Gerudo Prison Break, plus 18. For the Fun Water Temple Tentacle Boss, plus 6. For the Ghost Ship, plus 12. For its unapologetically gamey dungeons, plus 25. For the Big Titty Fairies, plus 4. For the Massive Blacksmith and the Bigger Sword, plus 8. For making Sheik a corny child's idea of a cool guy, plus 12. For creating one of the most fun, surprising, creative, and memorable coming-of-age stories I've ever experienced, plus 20. And for doing all of that, your first time working in 3D, plus 100. For a total of 369, best video game of all time, who could possibly dispute it? Whoa. You've decided. No, I I don't believe that sincerely. I just think this game's great. (laughs) I don't think you had... (laughs) Did you have any... Negative. Yeah, bald Zelda. <laughs> oh, that you, you subtracted points for that? I yeah, that. We, we had to deduct two for Zelda looking real bald as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. This is this game is great. I understand why this is a candidate. You know, I, I don't know if I would necessarily make it my favorite game of all time, but I understand why it's in the running 100%. Yeah, and if you, if you can imagine playing this in 1998. Right, right. And... I guess the good sign that we mentioned already is you've already picked up Majora's Mask. Yeah, I'm going to play Majora's Mask. I'm really excited to hop into it in a little bit. Because of what you like about Zelda, I actually think you'll end up enjoying it more than Ocarina of Time. So I've heard this from some people that, you know, there are other Zeldas that actually um, sort of even build on the Ocarina formula. So I'm excited to spend some time with those. And I'll I'll update uh, here once I've been able to check that out. But don't settle into Majora's Mask just yet, 
because you know what's coming next. I, I do. I do. We've been building to this for a while. You're going to play Dark Souls. I'm ready. I believe in you. Believe in me. I think I think I think you're ready. <laughs> okay. Let's leave it on that high note, shall we? <laughs> Even if it had a little bit of a a little bit of a neg in there. Um thank you. I mean you. nobody's ever ready. <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening. Um as always, if you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us or tell a friend. Uh, you can find details about this show, including uh, show notes at neverwasagamer.com. You can follow us on Twitter at neverwasagamer. Yeah, thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next time when Michelle takes on her own personal final boss. Mm-hmm. Because for Michelle, apparently being able to finish Dark Souls <laughs> is the final step to becoming a gamer. <laughs>